Grace Point. Let's hear it for the band. Great job. Thank you all so much. So much. Uh, Grace Point Youth, you are now. There you go. Two weeks in a row. That's what you call a streak. Uh, it is so, so good to see all of you. Um, so to, to begin, today is um, a holiday in America. Oh, before that, can we also welcome our online community who are joining us on YouTube? <laughs> Wherever you are in the world, uh, we're so thrilled to have you with us. And I know we have folks in the room, too, who are part of that online community who are here, and we're so thrilled you're here. Uh, every week, that is kind of a thing, and we're so glad that you're coming to visit us. Um, so today in America is holiday known as the 4th of July, and I wanted to take just a minute. How many of you ever, maybe in your upbringing, you ended up going to church, and on July 4th, you were at church, and you were singing like the Star Spangled Banner, and you were pledging allegiance to a flag? How many of you have ever been in that kind of situation? And was there ever a moment you were like, huh? Like, that doesn't feel right. Like, this, this seems like we're like, maybe idolatry seems like a word that we could throw around a bit with that. So I, I wanted to take a minute and just acknowledge um, that today is that day, um, but that also July 4th is not a Christian holy day. Um, it, it's not a, a day in the church. Um, and so I think it's possible to acknowledge I'm grateful to live here, but I also have to acknowledge that we have as a country and as a society, we have not lived up to our greatest ideals. Um, and, and so uh, we, we can acknowledge, yes, I'm glad to live here without having this exceptionalism um, that often gets thrown around or, you know, whatever happens when people listen to Toby Keith music, like whatever happens and like that, that thing that creates. Um, I think it's also important to say that nationalism of all varieties, especially though Christian nationalism, is anti-Christ and anti-gospel, and the church should resist that at every single turn because it turns the message of Jesus into something else. Um, so we're not going to pass out sparklers or anything. We're, we're going we're to talk about gospel. We're going to talk about the Beatitudes. And we're in this series um, looking through the Beatitudes in, in Matthew's gospel. And we've been spending a lot of time talking about the content of the word blessed because I really do think that matters. Um, what we think that word means and then how we use it in the world really, really matters. Um, I'll share some news with you. I have recently put on a new hat, and that new hat is um, that our oldest Cohen is playing basketball for the first time, joined a summer league, and when I was filling out the paperwork, which is what I still call the thing you do on the internet even, I call it paperwork, I was doing the paperwork and it was, had this little box like, will you help? Will you be, a, you know, a helper? In, in the league? And I'm like, I'm, I'll be a helper. I'd love to be a helper. So I go to this meeting a couple Sundays ago, and I'm sitting in a room. There are only like five or six of us, and, you know, looking around, and they start talking to me about, like, things that an assistant coach would not do, because that's what I was under the auspices of. I'm an, assist, I'm an assistant coach. I'm going to assist the head coach. And they're like, no, 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 you're the head coach. Like, <laughs> is there like, can I say No. Uh, and they're like, well, you're going to break all these kids' hearts. I'm like, okay. So who's my assistant? Like, you don't get an assistant. Like, this is you. This is you solo coaching basketball. Um, yes, it has gone like that. Yeah, we're 0-2, 0-2. The very first game when warm-ups were happening and the other team was doing, like, things together that was synchronized, 
And I looked over and my team was like, I was like, this is not going to go real well. I can already tell you. But we're at this game and I noticed that there's this uh, mom from the other team. She's walking around this shirt and this shirt has in big, bold, flowery print, it says blessed. I was like, I bet she thinks she's blessed. They just decimated us. <laughs> of course she thinks she's blessed. But I, I was like, immediately had this moment where I was like, I wonder, I wonder what she thinks that word means. So I almost went up to her and said, God is with you. God is on your side. Right? Because that's how, that's how we're defining blessed in this series. That when Jesus says blessed, he is announcing God's withness alongside those who have typically been left out. People who have typically been pushed aside, forgotten, not included. Jesus is saying to them, God is with you. God is on your side. All over America today, people are gathering in churches, and in lots of those churches, a specific song will be sung, and it will go like this. God bless America. Right, we're going to sing that all over the country today, which is a curious thing, right? You, ha- you see that on bumper stickers. You see it everywhere. And we live in the wealthiest nation the world has ever known. Like, what more do we want? What, what, what more blessing, blessing do we need? And I, but it's been on social media, politicians saying, pray for God's blessing on America. Pray, well, what exactly does that mean? Pray that God will continue to bless us to treat the world however we want without any sort of thought about consequences? Like, I don't think God wants to bless that. I don't think that's a thing God is actually okay with. But that word bless really, really matters. Um, a writer named Mark Allen Powell wrote a book called God With Us, and it's a book on um, themes of the gospel of Matthew. And I want to share what he says. And he, he rightly groups these first four Beatitudes together. So if at the end of the message today, you're going to say, yeah, but it sounds like we've talked about that for three other weeks now. Yes, we have. Because these first four Beatitudes are announcements to people who have had the stuff kicked out of them by life and by other people. Right? They're announcements to people who have been pushed out and forgotten that God is with them and that this is not a permanent situation, but there actually is blessing, presence, and promise coming to them. And here's what he says. Oh, go back. In short, the first four Beatitudes speak of reversal of circumstances for those who are unfortunate. Contrary to popular homiletical treatments, being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness are not presented here as characteristics that people should exhibit if they want to earn God's favor. But again, isn't that how we've mostly had them put to us? Like, you want God's favor, but you got to be poor in spirit. you got to be meek. you got to mourn. You have to be hungry and thirsty. He says, rather, these are undesirable conditions that characterize no one when God's will is done. These Beatitudes aren't even categories. Like, it's not like we have to keep these categories. I think Jesus' point of saying to the poor in spirit that theirs is the kingdom or to those who mourn that they'll be comforted or to the meek that they'll inherit the earth or today we're going to look at what he says to those who are hungry and thirsty. I think the point of the promise is that, is that the, these categories will no longer exist. We do not have to have people who are poor in order to somehow be faithful. Actually, the most faithful thing we could do is to work into a world, to create a world where everybody has enough. Right? And so these aren't categories we have to hang on to. But actually, when the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, which will only happen in and through us, human beings joining God in the work, then these categories become moot. We won't need them anymore. Because our task, if we don't fall into the beatitude, if we're not poor in spirit, if we're not mourning, 
if we're not meek. Our calling then is to embody the blessing and the promise to those who are. Right? It is a calling to show up and incarnate. That's a big deal in Christian theology, to incarnate God's blessing and God's witness and God's presence for those who have traditionally felt like they've been left out of God's blessing and witness and presence. So today, Matthew 5, 6, we're going to look at, uh, this is from the New Revised Standard Version, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I thought it might be helpful to show a couple other translations. Here's the Good News Bible. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God will satisfy them fully. J.B. Phillips, happy are those who are hungry and thirsty for goodness, for they will be fully satisfied. And here's the message. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. Okay. Okay. I'm not denying that that's not a good thing. But is that the point of the beatitude? Because it seems like the way most of these get translated, the way most of these get translated is in a way that turns it into something we can do, something we can work toward, something, something ideal that we should try to embody. Blessed are those who are really hungry for God because God's going to give them all they can handle, right? Is that really what's being told here? Are we being just told this is another hoop to jump through, another thing to live up to, another uh, measurement of, of status and achievement? I, I don't think... It is. I, don't, I think this is an announcement. I think it's an announcement of God's presence with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But what does that mean? And so let's begin with uh, this hunger and thirst. I, I want to begin on a very literal level. There are people in the world who are literally hungry and thirsty. They do not have enough food to eat, and they do not have access to clean drinking water. And actually, 9% of the world's population, a little less than 700 million people, go to bed hungry every night. That means when they hear Jesus' prayer, um, give us today our daily bread, they hear it in the same way that Jesus' first audience would have heard it. They're not meal planning for the week. They are struggling to put food on the table each and every day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, any of them, none of them are guaranteed. And, and we have 785 million people in the world who lack access to clean drinking water. Right, so the thing that I, we take for granted, the thing I take for granted all the time, turning on my faucet and getting a, a glass of water, for so many people, if they were to come across water, it would actually be physically harmful for them to drink it. And I think this beatitude's talking about more than that, but I don't think this beatitude's talking about less than that. I think Jesus cared about people having enough food to eat. This is why when a bunch of people show up to follow him, what's his move? We've got to feed these people. They're hungry, meaning they're not going to get it anywhere else. We've got to do something about it. Warren Carter, in his book, Matthew, in the Margins, says, those who hunger and thirst know that the divine will is not done on earth. You want to find out if the kingdom has come? You want to find out if God's commonwealth has spread across the earth? Then ask a person who's hungry or thirsty, and they will tell you, no, the kingdom has not come. The kingdom is not here. They feel it in their very bodies, when their stomachs growl and with their parched throat. And so whatever it means to be a church, whatever it means to be a group of people trying to follow this teaching and this way of Jesus, if we take that seriously, then it means we are called to bless, to be God's witness, to be God's presence with those who are hungry and thirsty, very literally 
in the world. But then there's this next line, blessed are those who hungry and hunger and thirst for righteousness. How many of you, when you hear the word righteousness, it just makes you feel a little like icky? Anybody else have that? Here's why. Doesn't it sound like whoever that person is, they're going to be way judgy? Because they're likely the only one in the room, right? Because here's what I, I tend to, and maybe you don't, but when I hear the word righteousness, I tend to think about it the way Webster's Dictionary does. And it's defined like this, acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. A righteous person is somebody who lives a good life. They're morally pure, they're religiously pure, they do all the right things, they don't break the law, they don't tear the tags off the pillows that say you can go to jail for tearing the tags off the pillows. Like, they don't do any of that stuff. They're very by the book, and they want you to be by the book, and if you're not by the book, shame, judgment, guilt, which is really a terrible thing to, to be around. Is that what is meant by righteousness? Are we talking about somebody who's, like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be really, really good human beings? Look, I think we should all hope to be really, really good human beings. I think it's a good thing. I grew up in a Christian environment where being good almost was put down, right? Like, well, nobody's good. You can't be good. Everybody's terrible. We're all awful. No, I actually think we can, we can, I got enough John Wesley in me. I think we can actually be good human beings. You know, we're, we've got our issues, we've got our flaws, we've got our hangups, but we can be good human beings. But I don't think that's what this beatitude is talking about. We, we sort of have this tendency, and, and I'll explain it like this. I grew up in a holler in eastern Kentucky. And when I grew up in a holler in eastern Kentucky in a free will Baptist church, we only read from the Bible translation that Jesus used, and that was the King James. Um, and we were, when we were reading that, I, li- I could not, it's embarrassing to say this out loud in a room with air in it. When I was growing up, I actually assumed that that's the language Jesus spoke. I'm sorry, spake. I actually thought that's exactly what Jesus was up to in the world. I thought he talked like that, and Jesus basically, where I, the area I grew up is known as Pond Creek, and like Jesus could have been on Pond Creek. He could have been up my holler doing this stuff, right? It was ripped out of context. It had no sort of, I didn't know about Greek or Hebrew or that there were languages behind the Bible, and I, I didn't know that every single Bible translation is an interpretation of the Bible, because here's what scholars have to do who are doing this. They take a word in Greek or Hebrew, and they're trying to translate it into, in our case, English. They're trying to make it make sense in English. And so sometimes they have to get a word that's close to it. Sometimes they have to pick a phrase. And when you put up all these translations side by side, people are doing it differently. What does all that mean? It means every single time you've ever read the Bible in an English translation, you've read the translator's interpretation of those texts. And if you want an interpretation-free Bible, I mean, the closest thing you could do is like get a Greek New Testament and good luck. It doesn't read the same. (laughs) And so every translation is an interpretation. And what that also means is that we give content to words sometimes in English that those words don't have in their original context. Right? So we see a word like righteousness. And I have two, bless you, and I have two primary focuses when I hear that word. One is a good, moral, upright person. The other is growing up in the 90s. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because they use righteous all the time, and it was a good thing to be, right? So it's one of those two. I'm assuming they're not talking about the Ninja Turtles, so I read into the Bible that they're talking about being really, really good people. Here's the issue. In Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, the word here that gets translated righteousness is dikaiosune. And this word doesn't, it, it can carry some connotation of, like, uprightness, but what the word really means at its core is justice, 
What it really means at the core is justice. Notice how the, I love how the inclusive Bible translates it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will have their fill. Hits different, doesn't it? Hits different. This is no longer a moralizing command to be a certain thing. This is now an announcement to those who have been deprived of justice that someday they will have their fill. That injustice in the world has an expiration date. That it doesn't have the final say. That it doesn't have the last word. Because the need for justice, to be hungry and thirsty for justice, means that justice is absent. That there is a lack of justice in the world. I think about how sometimes in the Psalms, uh, this refrain will pop up. How long, O Lord? Anybody ever seen that in the Bible? How long? And it's usually in the context of how Long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? How long will those who create injustice in the world, how long will they go unabated? How long will their injustice go unchecked and undealt with and unresponded to? God, how long will our enemies bully us and beat us up and keep us from uh, flourishing as human beings? How long? Those words pop into my brain Every time I'm watching the news and across the crying at the bottom, it says another mass shooting in the United States of America. Right? How long, oh Lord? Every time some of our leaders get on TV and like, yeah, it's bad, but what can we do about it? If only we had a legislative body that could act to create justice in the world. I think about it every time. I see a news story about another state or another group of leaders who are trying to strip rights away from the LGBTQ plus community, specifically trans people, specifically trans youth. How long, oh Lord, how long will people be persecuted and punished for having the courage to share who they are and how God made them with the world? How long? Every time new body cam footage is released, And another mother stands on television weeping over the loss of her child. How long, oh Lord? Every time I see more news about massive Christian denominations who, in the face of serious abuse allegations, choose to cover it up, demonize victims, and perpetuate an an unjust system that's just harming and creating more and more and more trauma. How long, oh Lord? When will injustice reach its expiration date? Because that's the promise, right? The promise is that those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, someday that hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Um, it's, you know how sometimes you romanticize things until... You actually go back and do them again. So I, I remember when our oldest, Cohen, was born. I, I would look back and remember those midnight feedings, like it would be my turn to wake up with him, and, and he'd be screaming his head off, just screaming his head off. Kid had no chill. Um, and, I, you know, I'd get him and take him in there, and I'd sit on the couch with him, and he'd be screaming his head off, and I would give him his bottle. And Slowly you could watch it. And I say, I, like, I look back, and I started missing that. And then we had other kids. I have, like, 400 of them, if you didn't know. And... Actually, some of you are like, that's prolific. I have five. Um, 
But, you know, looking back, I was like, oh, I really miss those midnight feedings. And then the next time around, I was like, you know, I think I misjudged that. I, I really think I misjudged that. But I remember just holding those little babies, and they're so hungry, and they're screaming, screaming because their bellies are empty. And you can watch it happen as they begin to drink that bottle. And it just slowly, from the top of their head down to the tips of their toes, it just becomes peaceful and chill. And you don't want to move very much because any slight adjustment, if you get a cramp, you got to play through it. Any slight adjustment is going to wake this kid back up. And you were just waiting until they get deep enough to sleep. You can put them back in bed. But there's just something, this moment when you watch it, this peace that comes over them because their cry, their hunger, and their thirst, the cry was heard, and they have been filled and satisfied And now they can rest. And the truth is, there are so many people in our world who just can't rest. For so many people over the last five, six years, it has just felt like a continual, like operating at kind of like, ah, right? Continually operating at this stressed out, cortisol-driven level where everything is just, it's a fight to survive all the time. So rest is hard to come by. So when people are speaking up and speaking out, people are, why can't you just relax? Because there are people in our world who can't relax because their hunger and thirst, their cries for nourishment have gone unheard, or if they have been heard, they have been intentionally stifled, silenced, and rejected. When I think about this promise that those who hunger and thirst for justice will have their fill. I think about that word justice and what that word justice means. What kind of justice are we talking about? I I think that for many of us who grew up in this country, our primary lens through which we see justice is just retribution. It's just getting even. So what is justice? Well, they did this, so we make them pay. They hurt us, we hurt them. They smacked me, the whole eye for an eye, right? Like, that's sort of our understanding of justice. Like, justice is getting even. But, and you can read the Bible and find that kind of justice advocated for at times, right? You you know that wonderful passage about beat your swords into plowshares? Isn't that great? There's also one that says beat your plowshares into swords. Depends on where you are in the Bible, right? And so there is a stream of justice in the Bible that is retributive. They're waiting for the day of the Lord to just kill everybody who disagrees with them. But then there's a better stream in the Bible, and I'm making a value judgment here. There's a better stream in the Bible that calls for restorative justice. This says not only do we want to set the oppressed free, but what we haven't realized is that the oppressor is also bound. And so it not only wants to liberate the oppressed, but in the same it wants to liberate the oppressor from being an oppressor. And I think that's the justice the Bible in its best moments, is advocating. I think it's calling us toward a a kind of world where we're actually dealing with the wounds of existence and we're dealing with the wounds we create in one another. We're not just wounding each other. You wounded me, now I wound you. Now we have two wounded people. But what if we were actually beginning to bind up those wounds and actually tried to bring healing and wholeness and true liberation and freedom into the world? I think that's what justice is getting at in the Bible. Uh, Amos is one of my favorite prophets, Um, Amos is a bit cranky. I'll just go ahead and give you the warning. If Amos were on social media today, people would be saying, I think you could say that in a kinder way. Um, But Amos also, he was staring at injustice, and he believed that there was a fire in his bones, and he had a message from God to proclaim. And here's 
what Amos said. I hate, you know it's good when it begins with I hate, right? Like you know he, he, he's good here. And he, so the prophet here is, is being God's mouthpiece. He, he's essentially saying, here's what I think God would say to us. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, justice like an ever-flowing stream. I mean, this is literally God saying through the prophet, I would rather you cancel church and bring healing to the world than do this and think what you're doing is healing the world. But, I mean, it's that severe and it's that precise. Amos is, it's not that there's a problem doing this. It's that when we believe doing this is the whole point. And that doing this somehow becomes our cover to do nothing about the pain and suffering in the world around us everywhere we look. And so I want to just talk briefly about how. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I think about this, like, oh, there's tons of injustice. There are people hungering and thirsting for justice in the world. I am like one person. Anybody else ever feel that, the, the weight of the enormity of it all? Like, what am I going to do? It would be like there's a burning building and I have a cup of water and I'm going to throw it on it thinking it's going to put the whole thing out. But the problem is when we, when we think that way, what we end up doing is we do nothing because it feels so overwhelming and if everybody thinks that way, we end up with, the, with some real serious problems in the world. I mean, if you want to think of a great image for what's happening in our world right now, how many of you have seen the picture of the Gulf of Mexico literally on fire? Like, that, that seems like an apt image for the era we're living in. So what do we do? Do we not try to put the fire out? Do we, even more, do we try to stop doing things that create those fires to begin with? Like, what do we do? So I would just say this. What, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you have, however much resources you have, however much energy you have, your creativity, all of that, no matter how it feels, when you show up in the world, things change. If it's as small as writing your elected official saying, all this needs to change, that is an important first step. Maybe it means you show up at a march and you actually, with your body, Say, how long, O oh Lord? How long will injustice win? Because injustice needs an expiration date. Maybe it means that you, make, you decide you carve out some of your financial life and you contribute to organizations that are doing important work around clean drinking water in the world or important work around um, abolition because we still have, there are still slaves in the world in 2021. There are lots and lots of amazing organizations doing amazing work in the world. Maybe it's you just show up in your neighborhood and you listen to stories. Maybe, maybe you believe somebody who nobody has believed. Maybe you risk your popularity and your platform to speak up and speak out on things that really, really matter, knowing that there may be a cost, but silence is actually far too great a cost. So I think there's a personal dimension to this justice work where it's just us deciding that inaction is not enough, that we, we may not be able to change everything, but we can change something. We can move the needle just a bit. And if enough of us are out there moving the needle just a bit, then who knows? We could actually make an impact in the world. I think about the importance of acknowledging that, that sometimes the narratives we tell ourselves 
aren't true and they actually limit the work of justice in the world. Right? The temptation on a day like today is to just scream America and turn it up, you know, turn up the volume and blow up some stuff, which is pretty American um, in so many ways, right? And the, the sort of the tendency is to think, if we, if we acknowledge that our founding and our history hasn't been all that we've told ourselves, that that somehow diminishes the good we've done in the world, because America has done some good things in the world. It's just not the case. America will, we will never live up to our ideals, our best ideals, and the ones we haven't even come up with yet that'll be better than those. We cannot live up to those until we acknowledge that, so, that all of our wealth and prosperity in this country, if you trace it back to the beginning, has been built on enslavement, forced labor, and the mistreatment of people who aren't white in this country. And as long as we're trying to keep that, that myth and that lie, from, as long as we're not telling our children that truth, we have no shot at building a just and equitable society. Right? So we, we have to tell the truth. But to acknowledge that for, some, for the good we've done, there's a lot of skeletons in that closet that need to be named and dragged out into the light so we can actually begin to dismantle systems of oppression that have existed since day one or before day one in this country. And I think about the Christian tradition. I think about, I mean, we, we invented religious violence in so many ways through our crusades and inquisitions and heresy trials. We've demonized and marginalized the LGBTQ community. We have um, silenced and not believed women. We have, in so many ways, we were on the wrong side of abolition in this country for so long, the majority of churches were. And I think we have to begin to tell the truth about our story, that as a movement and a tradition, we have clearly fallen way short of the person we claim to follow in, in the society he envisioned for the world. I think we have to say that as a church, if we're not believing victims of abuse, if we're, not, if we're trying to cover that up instead of actually get to the core of what's going on, if we're, if we're not asking ourselves, what is up with white males in authority? And why do we want to make excuses for us when we're doing really terrible things? Then we're never going to actually be able to move on and be a healthy, mature religion that, that for all, yes, we've brought good things to the world, but can you imagine what we could do if we weren't all this? Like, can you imagine what the Christian tradition, what gifts we could bring to the world if we could actually start tending our own house? And I think about Grace Point and all the ways we want to be a part of all of those conversations. And I think about the number of us I know who regularly lament, how long, oh Lord? I just often wonder if maybe God says back to us, I don't know, you tell me. How long? When's enough going to be enough? When are you going to start trying to put out the fire you've set? I just said fire. I'm clearly from eastern Kentucky. <laughs> My God, it's so embarrassing. When are you going to try to put out the fire you've started in the world? Like, how long are you going to wait? Because that's how it changes. Incarnation is a big deal in the Christian tradition. Incarnation, word becoming flesh and blood, moving into the neighborhood. Incarnation happens through us. We, we are the shoes in which God will always be present. When God wants to announce God's witness with a group of people, God will always do it through another person in flesh and blood showing up and embodying witness and presence to them. So maybe today we just let the divine turn that question back on us. 
How long? How long? You want to give injustice an expiration date? How long? How long will we wait? Let's pray. God, give us ears to hear the cries of those who hunger and thirst for justice. Give us ears to hear, which means often that we'll have to silence our mouths and open our ears. Give us the courage to acknowledge the ways in which we have perpetuated injustices, perhaps just by not saying anything, perhaps by not speaking up and speaking out when we could have, perhaps in the way we're spending our resources and the products we buy. Give us the courage to join this movement, the movement of the prophets, the movement of Jesus, the movement of human beings throughout history, crying out how long, how long. And give us even greater courage to have that question turned back on us. How long? May injustice have an expiration date. And may that happen because we showed up joined our creativity, our energy, and our resources, our voices, and we got to work. We're grateful for this Jesus who calls us into this work of the commonwealth, and may it come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said.